Good afternoon and welcome to a very special Major Mondays webinar, uh, Civil Exposure for the Employer and the Concept of Workers' Comp Exclusivity. Uh, there I am. Hello, everyone. So as usual, this is live question and answer. So if you have any questions, feel free to post them in the little box on the right and we'll get to them at the conclusion. So what is Part 2 or Part B coverage? Well, workers' comp policies carry two types of coverage. Part 1, workers' comp, and Part 2, employer's liability. You've probably seen on every workers' comp policy that, you know, it'll be labeled Part 1 insurance and it'll define what we will pay and who is an insured and all that other stuff. And then Part 2, employer's liability, which includes a bunch of exclusions that we're going to get into in a moment. Um, so part two is the employer's liability coverage, uh, and unlike workers' comp, which is a form of no-fault benefit, um, it requires proof of negligence, and I'm going to explain what I mean about that, uh, mean by that in a few slides. Um, part two coverage exists to cover work-related claims that are not workers' compensation. Uh, it's issued along with the workers' comp benefits to provide an umbrella for all work-related losses. Uh, automatic, it's automatically included in New York workers' comp policies, so theoretically, there's unlimited coverage for employers' liability in New York because there's unlimited coverage for workers' comp benefits. So what types of claims trigger Part 2 coverage? So uh, an important note at the start here, it is not EPLI, which is Employment Practices Liability Insurance. That's stuff like discrimination, harassment, wrongful termination, etc. Um, so it covers actual sort of negligence losses arising from uh, work-related accidents. So uh, scaffold law in New York is one to keep in mind. This can impose strict liability for owners and general contractors. Um, you know, whether or not the employer is entitled to the protections of exclusivity sort of depend on whether you can call them a coworker. Um, but that's, a, that's another webinar that we're going to be doing later this year. Um, Third-party action over suits. So this is where you know a third-party defendant uh, tries to get reimbursed from the workers' compensation carrier um, or to tries to share in the damages. Derivative claims, loss of consortium per quad claims, things like that. Um, a discovery-only suit, very common in New Jersey. You'll see them name the employer as a defendant, literally just to get some different items of discovery that they want pre-litigation. Um, a negligence claim against the employer will trigger the duty to defend, but not to indemnify. I'm going to go into what the difference is between those two duties in a second. Uh, and an intentional wrong, whether or not that's going to trigger Part 2 coverage, kind of depends on the disclaimer wording. So a word on the duty to defend versus duty to indemnify. So uh, the duty to defend arises if the claim even possibly falls within coverage, no matter how meritless it may be. So uh, if coverage is theoretically triggered by the four corners of the complaint, uh, then there's going to be a duty to defend. The duty to indemnify exists pursuant to the contract and the terms of the policy. So if liability covered by the policy exists, the duty to defend exists. Um, if you're not sure whether or not there's a duty to defend or indemnify, uh, what you will usually see is um, the insurer issuing a reservation of rights notice, you know, telling the insured we're going to defend under a reservation of our right, to later disclaim coverage or you know, uh, abandon our duty to uh, defend. So the duty to defend does not end until judgment or settlement or the insured agrees. Uh, note that a policy limit tender from the defendant does not end the duty to defend. Um, and if the insurer does not defend and is found to be liable, there could be a bad faith claim, breach of contract, attorney's fees and expenses. Uh, the insurer could be bound to pay good faith settlement within limits, bound to pay an excess judgment, there's a pretrial offer within policy limits, it's not accepted, et cetera. 
So all kinds of nasty stuff um, if we don't defend under the policy when we should have. Uh, note that there's actually a relatively recent case in New York that says you can't get recouped defense costs uh, if you're ultimately not, uh, not obligated to defend unless you actually put it in the insurance agreement. It's in the contract itself. All right, uh, very briefly, uh, what goes into a good reservation of rights letter? So there's no statutory requirements for these. The requirements come from common law over time. Um, it's supposed to give fair and prompt notice to the insured of the intent to raise coverage defenses or pursue declaratory relief later on. I'm gonna get into that in a moment. Um, you state the possible defenses to coverage with reference to specific policy provisions. There's a good description of the accident and the claims against the insured. Uh, if further investigation is required, you notify the insured that rights are reserved subject to additional facts. Uh, you must, must, must be unambiguous in every type of insurance law ever. Unambiguity, uh, ambiguities are construed against the carrier. That goes for workers' comp as well. Um, disclaiming bodily injury coverage uh, for an accident in New York, you must give notice to the insured, injured, or any other claimant as soon as possible, or the denial will be deemed ineffective. Uh, a reservation of rights does not extend the duty to disclaim as soon as possible. And the defenses not raised at the time of the coverage position issued are generally considered waived. So I'm just gonna briefly dive into the standard part two exclusions. There's two that's really pertinent for this discussion today. Uh, C1, liability assumed under a contract. C2, punitive and exemplary damages due to bodily injury of an illegal employee. Um, C3, bodily injury of a legal employee with employer actual knowledge of the illegality. C4, any obligation imposed by workers' comp, uh, occupational disease, unemployment, disability, or similar law. Um, C5, bodily injury intentionally caused or aggravated by you. So that language is gonna become important in a sec. Um, C6, bodily injury outside US and Canada, unless it's uh, just temporarily being outside. Uh, C7, damages covered under EPLI, we talked about that, uh, or arising out of personnel practices and policies, so not really a work-related injury. Um, C8, bodily injury covered by a federal program. C9, bodily injuries uh, to someone covered by Federal Employers Liability Act. And then C10, C11, and C12 are all rather uh, specific, but um, you know there really, really wasn't quite space for them on this singular slide. So you know I'm happy to answer questions about them if anyone's that curious. Uh, employment coverage examples. So I thought this would be helpful so people could see kind of how this all interacts. So let's just say, you know, the floor gives out from underneath an employee uh, and he pursues and receives workers' comp benefits. You know, uh, the employee sues the property owner in a third-party action thereafter, the landlord, uh, the company that just fixed the floor a few months ago, and the employer. Uh, the counts of the complaint include negligence against all parties. This is very common. You probably see this uh, in basically every complaint. Uh, and an intentional wrong against the employer. Um, the property owner answers and files a cross-claim alleging the employer owes contractual indemnification per a lease agreement. So here's how this is going to end up shaking out. Um, the workers' comp carrier is going to issue a notice to the insured of defense under a reservation of rights, uh, and specifically under a reservation of the right to exclude or disclaim liability for defense or indemnification. Uh, the workers' comp slash employer's liability carrier uh, will share in defense costs until the negligence action is dismissed. Remember, that's the negligence action that you know includes all defendants, whether or not that's proper. 
The reason for this, uh, the employee has elected workers' comp as their exclusive remedy, so they cannot pursue a negligence claim against uh, their employer. Um, what do I mean by share and defense costs? Well, the employer invariably has a commercial general liability insurance carrier. So, you know, until we sort out who's really on the hook here, generally they'll both pay for it uh, until, you know, uh, the workers' comp carrier gets out. So then the workers' comp carrier uh, can seek declaratory judgment that the intentional wrong and contractual indemnification claims are excluded from the Part 2 coverage based upon the C5 and C1 exclusions we just talked about. What is the end result of that? Well, if the negligence claim is also dismissed, there's no longer any duty to defend or indemnify under the policy, and the carrier just sort of closes its books and rides off into the sunset, and the employers either are on the hook directly or their CGL uh, coverage will be on the hook. So just some miscellaneous coverage issues. Tenders of defense are very common. Don't assume that the people serving, the, serving it on you got it right. I strongly recommend subpoenaing the policy and checking out the language. Uh, you'd be surprised how many sort of um, dilettantes there are out there in the world of insurance coverage. So uh, don't just take them at their word. Uh, just make sure you actually owe a duty of defense um, or owe a tender of defense rather that's different than the duty of defense. Uh, the language of the policy matters, so pay attention to who is named insured, who will, uh, the we will defend portion, the we will pay portion, the locations covered, definitions such as occurrence or bodily injury, uh, all of the specific endorsements, etc. And finally, just keep in mind the difference between an occurrence policy and a claims made policy. Uh, an occurrence policy is going to cover uh, any occurrence during the policy period. Uh, a claims made policy is only going to cover it if the claim is also made during the policy period. So what is workers' comp exclusivity? What we're all here for today. So it's known as the exclusive remedy due to an election of remedies by the employee. The theory is that they elect to receive comp benefits and thereby forego the right to sue their employer. Exclusive remedy for work-related injuries. Acceptance of workers' comp benefits will bar any other claim against the employer. What is the policy rationale for this? Well, in exchange for guaranteed access to benefits without regard to fault, the worker surrenders other claims against the employer. Um, there are limited exceptions. Intentional wrong applies in both New York and New Jersey. We're going to dive into that. Uh, in New Jersey, it's Section 8, election uh, surrender of other remedies. We just talked about what that means, you know, electing to receive workers' comp. In New York, it's Section 11 and 29.6. Section 11 um, applies the bar against the employer. Section 29.6 makes it applicable to co-workers, the insurance carrier, et cetera. Um, the exclusivity protection extended to co-workers in both New Jersey, uh, which is, I'm sorry, yeah. The exclusivity protection is extended to co-workers in both New Jersey per the language of Section 8, which actually references another in the same employee. And as I just said, in New York per Section 29.6, making Section 11 applicable to co-workers. So how powerful is workers' comp exclusivity? Well, if you can't tell by all the underlined case names on this page, the answer is very. Um, so here are a couple different contexts to keep in mind where uh, workers' comp exclusivity barred a civil action against the employer. Special employers, remember that whole general special concept, like, you know, in the context of a staffing agency lending an employee. Employer as an alter ego, special employer in managing agency context, employer in a joint venture context. Party, uh, here's some useful language from Natural versus Jamboy. Parties are co-employees in all matters arising from and connected with their employment. 
uh, intentional torts if injured worker has accepted comp can also be barred. Um, even for willful, wanton, and malicious assault, an employee accepting comp means they have elected one of two inconsistent remedies and is stopped from suing the employer. That's from Legault versus Brown. Note that all employers are protected. So I just mentioned the concept of general and special employment. Um, the defendant's general employer, are they still protected when they have no business nexus to the plaintiff whatsoever? Uh, for instance, in a staffing agency context. Uh, well, when an employee has accepted workers' comp benefits, all of the workers' employers, uh, whether joint ventures, parent and subsidiary, corporate affiliates, or general and special employers, are protected. Uh, and here's some very powerful language from the Court of Appeals in New York. Um, Court of Appeals held that the workers' comp law clears all doubts away. The statute, having deprived the injured employee of the right to maintain an action against a negligent co-employee, bars a derivative action which is necessarily dependent upon the same claim of negligence for which the exclusive remedy has been provided. Here the plaintiff received a right of compensation in exchange for the loss of the right of action against the negligent co-employee. So if you think about it in the staffing agency context, you lend an employee to another employer um, and then a, an actual full-time worker of that employer is responsible for the claimant's injury. And you know, realistically, um, those two are not really co-employees. But thanks to this line of cases, you know, the law will consider them co-employees. And the best way to think of it, and I'll mention this later in the webinar, is just debt is to one, debt is to all. Uh, if an if suit against an employer is barred, suit against every employer basically involved in the case is also going to be barred. All right. Uh, similar protections apply in New Jersey. Um, Section 8 by its language applies to persons in the same employee. Special employers are protected from suit. Um, New Jersey re rejects something called the dual capacity doctrine. This is this uh, clever argument by plaintiffs that, you know, the employer serves in two capacities, one as my employer and two, you know, say as the landlord, for instance. So I should be able to sue them as the landlord because that's something completely different from, you know, their capacity as my employer. And the courts in New Jersey have said, no, no dual capacity doctrine. We reject that, even though it applies in some other jurisdictions. Uh, it would circumvent the protections of Section 8 if they allowed it. Uh, Section 8 bars claims for negligent infliction of emotional distress against the employer. Uh, an action against a former employee for neg neg negligent evaluation was barred. Uh, a cause of action of negligent hiring for sexual harassment by a supervisor was limited to relief under the Workers' Compact. Uh, note, either the employer or the employee can waive um, the right to workers' comp and, and, you know, elect instead to pursue a negligence action with an effective individual waiver pre-accident. And if you want an idea of what kind of goes into that type of waiver, check out the case Peck versus Newark Morning Ledger Co. The intentional wrong exception in both New York and New Jersey. So in New Jersey, you might hear it referred to as a laid low claim. Um, so uh, the standard for laid low claim, there's two prongs of it. Uh, substantially certain standard, you know, uh, that the employer, or it was substantially certain that the injury would result uh, from the employer's actions or lack of action. Um, plus more than a fact of life of industrial employment, the injury is more than a fact of life of industrial employment and beyond what the legislature intended to immunize in the Workers' Compensation Act. New York Section 11 uh, must be deliberate and intentional, not merely negligent and reckless. Um, you can sue a co-employee in New York for intentional wrong 
and collect workers' comp if the employer did not authorize and instigate, um, the, uh, and I mean the co-employee in that context. Um, you cannot circumvent statutory protections by refusing to accept benefits in a compensable accident. Uh, specific acts directed at causing harm are needed in New York to bypass the protections. Employer knowledge of the risk is not enough. And I just wanted to bring up something pretty neat that happened um, legally in New Jersey. So they've adapted a New Jersey specific part two endorsement because there was this um, line of cases that were coming out basically saying that the definition of um, intent under you know, New Jersey law with this substantially st certain standard you know, was broader than uh, the definition of intent under policies, which basically requires actual intent to injure. You know, um, intentional in or um, injuries caused intentionally or aggravated by you, uh, the language we saw in the exclusion. So, I mean, New Jersey ended up uh, adopting a specific part two endorsement for their employer's liability policies uh, that literally says, you know, uh, intentional acts excluded under the policy. Uh, this does apply to uh, Section 8 claims and basically laid low claims. So they sort of harmonize the two different definitions of intent. And now a Section 8 claim, you know, where you're alleging an intentional wrong against a coworker or your employer, those are actually excluded from coverage under the Part 2 policy, thanks to this New Jersey specific Part 2 endorsement. Uh, New York Workers' Comp Section 11, a word on the grave injury. So the employer is not liable for injury sustained by an employee in the scope of employment uh, or for indemnification slash contribution to the third party defendant unless there is a grave injury. These are defined in statute. They are death, total loss of use or amputation of an arm, leg, hand, foot, loss of multiple fingers or toes, paraplegia, quadriplegia. Um, this does not protect against contractual indemnification. If you agree in advance to indemnify a co-defendant, uh, that agreement will apply. Uh, the employer's liability would be coverage, uh, would be triggered. Um, the employer's liability coverage would be triggered if there was a grave injury common law indemnification claim against the employer. Um, the freedom from liability to the third person can be overcome with competent medical evidence showing a grave injury. And I just want to note, Grave injury does not result in strict liability. All it allows is a third party defendant to pursue indemnity slash contribution from the employer. Uh, so the employer still has to have as a practical matter, some negligence in order to be responsible to um, indemnify the co-defendant. So there are some exceptions written into section 11. Uh, if the employer does not have the coverage required by the workers' compact, the employee can elect workers' comp or sue civilly for damages. Uh, if the employee sues civilly, the employer cannot raise defenses such as contributory negligence, assumption of risk, or coworker negligence. Um, note this is similar to New Jersey after the waiver uh, slash election that we talked about earlier. Uh, and the employee is not required to plead or prove freedom from contributory negligence. So section 29.6, coworker protection, we talked about this uh, briefly. So workers' comp is still the exclusive remedy for an employee injured or killed by coworker negligence. This specifically applies to section, this specifically applies the section 11 protections to co-employees. An employee acceptance of workers' comp for a work injury bars a claim for an intentional tort. Yes, against a coworker as well. This protection is powerful. As I mentioned earlier, think debt is to one, debt is to all. Suit is barred. Um, suit barred as to a special employee will bar as to a general employer and vice versa.
And then um, before we wrap up here, a brief word on subrogation rights, since we know how much I love to talk about this. So um, do we have Section 29 in New York and Section 40 in New Jersey rights on an intentional wrong suit against our own insured? Well, a suit for an intentional wrong against a coworker does not permit a double recovery by the claimant. This case is from New York. Uh, the legislative design of reimbursement whenever uh, recovery was obtained in tort for the same injury that was the predicate of, for payment of workers' comp benefits. Uh, Section 29 gives the carrier lien against any civil recovery for the same injuries even when brought against the employer. And the same goes for federal action against the employee for hostile work environment, discrimination, battery, and assault. So in New York, the answer is a resounding yes. If the employer is sued for an intentional wrong, it's gonna be excluded under the part two policy anyway. Uh, and then the carrier is going to be able to assert a lien for the workers' comp benefits they paid under the part one policy. So similar result in New Jersey due to Frazier versus NJM, one of my favorite cases. Uh, it applies section 40 rights to uh, the functional equivalent source of a third party recovery. Uh, the workers' comp carrier is entitled to dollar for dollar reimbursement from settlement uh, of a workers' comp intentional tort claim against the employer. This is due to a holding in um, the Millison case that tort recovery against an employer is to be offset by workers' comp benefits paid by that employer. Again, no double recovery. Uh, Richter versus Oakland Board of Education, I wanted to mention this because it's relatively recent, June 28, 2021, from the New Jersey Supreme Court. Um, they held that workers' comp exclusivity does not preclude a claim under the law against discrimination. Uh, and they affirmed the appellate division decision that uh, should the jury award be equal to or greater than medical and indemnity paid to the petitioner, a lien would attach, but the jury cannot include in that amount fees and costs paid to the petitioner's workers' comp attorney. So I just wanted to float that out there, but yes, in both New York and New Jersey, we are entitled to subrogation, uh, I'm sorry, entitled to reimbursement rights uh, from an intentional wrong suit against our own insured. All right, that was some dense subject matter. Let's see if we have any questions, which I generally have trouble opening the question box. Uh, it actually looks like we do not have questions. So uh, thank you as always for attending. Like I mentioned later this year, we are gonna be getting into labor law, which is a pretty, um, uh, common subject and difficult subject in New York. So I do recommend you tune in for that webinar. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, stay safe and thanks again.